Today, we dive into how to write compelling copy for your landing pages, how to maximize profits through lower priced items, and how to sell without feeling icky. Next on Make and Bacon. Hey there, I'm Jason Logsdon and this is Making Bacon. We're all about helping you serve your fans, grow your income, and get the most out of your blog. Today's episode is brought to you by my very own self-publishing 101 course. The average home cook owns almost 50 times more printed cookbooks than PDF cookbooks. So why are you limiting yourself? With the advent of print-on-demand companies like Amazon KDP and IngramSpark, it's now easier than ever to become your own publisher. But if you don't know what you're doing, you can waste not only your time, but also your money. And that's where my video course comes in, stepping you through the entire self-publishing process so you can get your printed cookbook up for sale on Amazon in no time flat. You can check it out at makethatbacon.com slash publish now. Now, on to the show. As bloggers, we often become experts at writing about food, of connecting to our audience, and clearly explaining how to make something in the kitchen. But writing sales and marketing copy is a whole nother beast. Luckily, today's guest is the perfect person to help us out. She is a 13-year veteran direct response copywriter. From her start as the director of marketing at Glazer Kennedy Insider Circle, working in writing for Dan Kennedy and Bill Glazer, to her private business helping hundreds of coaches, authors, and speakers, to her podcast helping you market your business and put good into the world. She lives and breathes effective marketing that works without selling your soul. Can't wait to learn from today's guest, sales copywriter and co-host of System to Thrive, Allison Lex. Allison, welcome to Making Bacon. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk about this. I think it's, yeah, sales copy and creating programs is an incredible way to leverage the following and the traffic and the resources that you've already created and make more money doing it. And no matter how good your product is, if you can't write sales copy, no one will ever buy it to find out how wonderful it is. <laughs> <laughs> I do say you could have the best product in the world. And if nobody knows about it, it's not going to sell. So that's what I do. <laughs> so I can't wait to dive into marketing and landing pages and all the other things we need to know about. But before we get started, I always like to ask, what is it like around your dinner table on a typical day? My dinner table is surrounded by cats. <laughs> I am a crazy cat lady. And my husband, I'm sorry to all the cat people purists out there. My husband likes to feed the cats chicken from the dinner table. So they beg, but they don't beg on my side. They beg on his side because I don't give them anything. <laughs> they know who the softie is. And <laughs> yeah, they do. He always says he's a soft touch. And, uh, you know, it's... A lot, sometimes quiet and sometimes let's be honest the dinner table is in front of the tv <laughs> our dinner table is definitely uh tray tables in our living room six days a week <laughs> we we do love our tray tables they are the one like it's seriously one of the first purchases we made when we got together <laughs> <laughs> always a great uh, one of the best inventions out there is the <laughs> the tray table <laughs> <laughs> yes so most food bloggers are pretty good writers, but I always feel like marketing copy is so different uh, than like any other type of copy. You know, I might write a great book, develop a video course or a hands-on cooking class, but then it comes time to do the sales page for it and my writing brain just like starts to panic. How can someone that is used to writing informational content approach uh, writing marketing copy? So the first thing that I want you to think about is that there are two parts of a brain. There's the emotional part and the logical part. And some people have 
equal sized parts. Some people have one part bigger than the other part, whatever. But the truth is that the emotional part of your brain is the part that spurs a buying decision. People buy emotionally and usually, I mean, every single purchase, the biggest purchase you can make your house in most cases, it's an emotional purchase. You justify it with logic. You talk yourself into it with logic, but it's an emotional thing. And so when we're creating our sales copy, the first and biggest thing that we have to do is tap in to the emotional center of our readers' brains. When you're creating a program, okay, let me back up. My husband for Valentine's day bought us a socially distanced date night. That was a pizza making class virtual with the authentic Italian pizzeria owner from New York city. Okay. And it was a very cool date night. My, my parents watched my kid cause we're all in the same bubble. It was very nice. That's emotional. He bought it for an emotional reason. We know how to make pizza. We also know how to dial the phone and get really good pizza. Okay. This was a totally different reason. So think about why your people are buying your thing. Are they buying it because they want their life to be easier, better, healthier, less chaotic, more fun, and then position yourself from that aspect of it. I love that approach to that's it. That's the first thing. Yeah. Because that's such a thing that we talk about too, just in your recipe notes and like your head notes that you're, a lot of people aren't following your recipe to make, you know, chicken parm or to make pizza. They are following it because of some of the story that you tell and the way that you approach it and the way that you've connected with them. You can find, you know, a thousand chicken parm recipes on Google, but it's what you put into it that why, that's why they follow it. Yeah. I mean, if I'm looking for a recipe, let's say I'm browsing through Pinterest, which I'm sure everybody's familiar with. I'm browsing through Pinterest and I'm looking the, obviously the first thing I look for is the image, but then if I'm going to use a recipe, just, I mean, just last week I searched best chocolate chip cookie recipe and I use the word best because I'm, I'm going to need me some good chocolate <laughs> chip cookies. And the, the post had reactions from the person, the people in that person's life, right? My best friend said these were better than her grandmother's. I took these to a bake sale and they sold out first. Like those kinds of things, that's emotional. I want that. I, you know, I want to be able to be like, mom, these are better than your cookies, <laughs> right? Hey now. And so think about the benefits that your people want that is beyond just the recipe for chocolate chip cookies, because even if it's like, you know, and, and you can always look at a benefit that may not be so obvious. Hey, these cookies, they only take 15 minutes to prep or, Hey, these cookies, did you know that you don't have to soften the butter? So they can be like on demand chocolate chip cookies or the dough freezes, like, right? Like think about what you can pull from the recipe that is a benefit in itself 
and use that to position the recipe. Now, obviously that's just one recipe. If we're selling a course, there's an overarching benefit that they're gonna get, but tap into that. And that's a lot where features and benefits comes from, right? That you have the feature that mm -hmm. is, you will end up with a chocolate chip cookie. And the benefit is you can talk <laughs> trash to your mom because you just made a better cookie than she did. Exactly, exactly. So the feature, and a really easy way to remember, a feature is what they get. A benefit is why they care. I like that. That makes it... I don't have any more than it that. It makes it very <laughs> clear, you know, which ones you're going for. And, and you kind of need both of them, but you definitely, I feel like a lot of people writing, they will talk about their, their recipe and they will go into the benefits of the recipe. But then it comes to writing about like their hands-on cooking course. And then it's like, this will be 45 minutes. This is what you are going to make. This is, and it's just like this sterile list of what you kind of get, but you don't have any reasons why you are going to become a master New York pizza chef with a romantic date night at the end of it. So the, the trick to handling that is anytime you're going to tell them what they get, use a transition phrase like, so you can, so that you, so you will, which helps you right? any kind of transition phrase, and then throw that benefit right on the end. And this is actually way back in the day when I worked for Bill Glazer, we called it the one, two punch. You get this. So you get that one, two punch. And it's a really great way to showcase your features, right? In just 45 minutes, you're going to get step-by-step -step instructions, which means that you transition phrase can do this in just 45 minutes. This is not one of those quote unquote 30 minute meals. That's only 30 minutes because I chop vegetables like a freaking, you know, superstar chef. There's a specific person that I'm talking about, <laughs> that, but you know, <laughs> right? Like we want as a buyer, we want to know why, what is this? What's in it for me? Why do I care? And with that, you're hitting both sides of the brain at the same time. So the emotional brain's not going like, well, I don't care. And your intellectual side's not going like, but do I really want to spend $20 when I have, they're both kind of getting assuaged together. Exactly. Exactly. What's a good way to come up with the, the either features or benefits that are most valuable to share with your audience? That's a really good question. And it's, the word is you have to lightly stalk your people. <laughs> it's the phrase, I lightly stalk them, get a little creepy and check out your comment sections. Ask your people, Hey, what are you looking for most from your, from your, your stuff from, from this experience with me? And I'm trying to be broad because I know that not everybody has the same uh, exact thing, but what is it that you're looking for most? Another trick, you're already publishing a ton of content, right? Look in your analytics and find out which posts have done the best. This is really going to help when it's time to create something, or if you've already created something, how you can maybe tie it in. Hey, I've noticed that my top five recipes are all 15 minutes or less. Maybe my people want fast, right? Like really look for commonalities in the successful things you're already doing. Get into those Facebook groups, get onto Reddit, 
Google, look for different forums. You know, I'm not sure if, if Food Network or the Cooking Channel or whatever has forums because my husband has enough cookbooks. <laughs> I do not need to go to those websites. And, you know, your local community, any news articles, be aware that comment sections can and usually are slightly cesspools <laughs> of the internet. Okay. So go in with your armor on and your coffee in your hand or whatever you need to fortify yourself, but start looking at what people are saying. What are they pointing that they love? Hey, I really love this particular thing, or I used it in this way, or I did X, or I was able to achieve Y. And once you find that, now you're seeing what's important to the community at large. You can also, like I said, you can ask them, you can do a survey. When you put a survey together, keep it short, make it, you know, I don't want to see a 20 question survey. I, I get these surveys in the mail from my doctor's office. I don't know why, because they're like six pages long and they're not bribing me with anything, <laughs> right? They're just like, you need to do this. And I'm like, no, I don't, <laughs> you need to be recycled. Like it's just right. So keep it short, keep it open-ended, let them answer rather than you providing answers for them. That way you're getting their language. You're seeing how they speak. You're seeing the actual words they use because it's likely not going to be the same as the words you use. They're going to say, they're going to say, you know, my big knife. And you're going to say the particular kind of knife that it is. You want to say big knife, by the way, you want to use their language. And once you know how they phrase things and they phrase their challenges, that's what you can use, right? As the, you know, it's 45 minutes, but it will. And then you can take that phrase of like, you know, people kept saying, I'm stressed out and I need something to get on the table in 15 minutes. Like you can then use that exact language, right? Exactly. If you, if you discover that your audience is made up of mostly let's, let's say single moms whose kids are in after school sports. Well, now, you know, like, okay, you can get this from the fridge to the table before practice. There's the language that you can use and a huge benefit, right? Instead of just saying by 6 PM, well, by 6 PM, they're out the door onto the soccer field, right? So it's a slight disconnect. But if you say before practice, now you're showing them, Hey, I get you. I see you and I understand your problem and I'm here to solve it. I think that concept of understanding the problem and solving a problem is so key that in in food blogging, especially you can do a lot of things that aren't necessarily solving a problem. Like you said, if you wanted pizza tonight, you don't have to take a class over the internet to figure out how to make it. Like you could make your version, you can order it in, you can go to a restaurant. And so figuring out like, what is that specific problem that you are trying to solve with your recipe or with your hands-on cooking class or your cookbook or video course. And then that can really help inform some of that marketing copy in a non, non salesy way that like, I was trying to accomplish this. I did accomplish this. If you take this, this is what you will learn and what be, you'll be able to do in the future. Yeah. I mean, not everybody, let's go back to the pizza course because that's a, it's a paid class and that's kind of what we're encouraging people yeah. to, to move forward with. Like I said, we know how to make pizza and our dough is good. It's a recipe we found online and we modified it a little bit here. 
in our amateur, non-professional way. And it's good. It's serviceable. It works for us. We wanted to try a different style. And so our problem was, is we didn't know what to do to make it feel more authentic, right? We used canned sauce and we did this X, Y, Z, maybe not the right cheese. And so we wanted to see what we could do with, with good ingredients and the right instruction. That's the problem. We've been winging it on our own with internet based research, right? Like think about it. Like, so when you're looking at what you're selling, think, brainstorm all the reasons that people might buy it. They don't have a good pizza place near them. They don't know how to make pizza. They want control over what goes in their food. They might have an allergy and they, they need to substitute some things. They like to cook and they want more. That it's not necessarily like, it's not a world ending problem, but it is still a problem, right? I like to cook and I want to know more. I'm excited to do this and I don't have the resources yet to do it. And you tap into that, figure out what the big problem is by doing all that light stalking I just mentioned, <laughs> maybe a survey, and then just lean into it. The nice thing about marketing online is that if it doesn't work the way you want, you can change it. <laughs> like it's, it's, it's a website, not a stone tablet. Nothing's etched. It's, it's pixels. You can change them. And so you can say, Hey, you know what? The, the after school sports moms, they weren't really going for this before practice thing, but man, they're going to go for that healthy thing that keeps their kid awake long enough to do their homework or whatever. And so you can test different theories. You can also do that with the content you put out. So let's say you have a couple of different recipes that you are uh, trying that might be included in a program or a course or a class, put one out about before practice and put one out about healthy and see which one gets more engagement, more shares, more comments, more views. Look at your analytics and see which one is better. Now you know what hook to use in your marketing for the course. We talk a lot about uh, mailing lists too. And I feel like that concept of doing like, here's like three concepts that I think might work. Like if you write those articles, it's pretty easy to put them in a, like one at a time in a newsletter and say, what are your thoughts about this? Is this like helping you? Is this meeting your, your demand? Or is there anything that this isn't solving? And if you do that over the next month, you would have feedback on each one of those that you would kind of go like, oh, maybe like you're saying, my audience is leaning one way or another. And these are things that, you know, maybe I want to take one part that everyone loved out of this, but they didn't care about the timing wise or whatever. Uh, I think that's a really valuable insight for really narrowing down for your very specific audience, not only your niche, but like the, the actual people that make up your audience. Yeah, you can even take it a step further now that we're brainstorming and you could craft a subject line that speaks to each one of those three, right? So before practice, smart for homework and healthy choices. Let's just go with those three and split your list into thirds, have the same content in the email, send a third with one, a third with another and a third with a third and see which one gets opened more. That is a quick indicator of which one your audience is more likely to be engaged in. I love that. You take that 15 minute meal or whatever, and 
it can work beginning after or after homework and get it out there and say, just what are people clicking on? What do they actually care about? Exactly. It's all research. Speaking of like subject lines and headlines, like I, I never know quite what to put in either a subject line in an email or like a headline on a landing page. What's a good approach to come up with something that is direct enough, but it's also not just kind of like cookbook course or like something that's just too direct. There are a couple of different types of subject lines. So we're going to talk specifically about subject lines for emails because um, headlines are a whole nother <laughs> beast. So there are a couple of different types. One is the curiosity provoking subject line. And this one is, you know, you want them to be like, huh? And click like, I've got to know more. That's intriguing to me. I've seen this go really badly. So you don't want to be clickbaity, but you know, I mean, even something as simple as can I call you, which is what I've used for my own business because my, my market's a little different. Can I call you? That's a little bit like, what, what do you mean? Can I call you? Now there's some scammy ways to do it. Like about our appointment. Mm -hmm. Well, we didn't have an appointment. You're trying to get me to sign up for something. That's a little, don't do that. But you can be very curiosity in inducing, or maybe I could start an email with that one time I was bitten by a giraffe, which really did happen to me. The story is not as exciting as the punchline, but I could use it to get the click on the email. Now, as long as I connect the dots in the email a little bit. Okay. So curiosity. And then there's just kind of the plain one, which is like, you know, the $20 discount on my pizza course ends tomorrow at midnight. Like that's just, you kind of say it and that's a little more targeted because you know that the people that are opening this are at least somewhat interested in what you have to offer. And so for that one, I would expect that your conversion rate, your click through rate on the email itself would be higher to go over to your offer page. than, for instance, your curiosity one. And then there is kind of the benefit one, which would be, you know, open this, if you've ever wanted to make your own pizza and that is what are they getting out of it or open this if practice happens too soon every night if we want to just keep with our themes that we've set here <laughs> open this if you need cookies right now if if it's that kind where you don't have to defrost the butter <laughs> right so it's about that benefit so we've got curiosity which is kind of off the wall and makes them just intrigued then the very plain stated and then the the big benefit, which would encourage them to say, yes, that's something I want in my life. And like you said, you want to be upfront that you don't want to say this technique, you know, changed my, my daughter into scoring 30 goals a game at tonight's soccer game. You want it to be, my child goes out Real. feeling <laughs> filled, you know, with energy to play in the game, which is realistic. Exactly. Yeah. We, and so that's really an ethical marketing perspective, right? So especially in today's society, we have been hoodwinked and suckered and all those other euphemisms for taken advantage of by a lot of people. And so people are really hesitant to spend their money with someone they don't trust. If you're making outlandish claims and you can't back it up, 
you're going to dissolve some trust that your audience has in you. And you've spent a lot of time building that up. That's money you've put into your relationship piggy bank, if you will, right? All those coins. Don't blow it on an out, an outlandish claim that makes people feel icky about you. I think trying to keep it with that in mind that there is this trust you're trying to keep with your audience. I feel like a lot of people in blogging, especially food blogging, go the opposite direction that we're so worried about coming across. Like we give away so much content for free that like now we're charging and we feel bad about charging in some ways. What are some tips to kind of stop feeling icky about trying to sell something that we do believe in, that we know has benefit and we're trying to share the benefits with our audience, but we're still a little hesitant to kind of get it out there. Okay. So I, I make it a point not to talk religion or politics on podcasts, but when I was younger, I was very involved with the youth group and we had a youth pastor. And that youth pastor was very giving and there for us. And, you know, I would go to him all the time. And he was like on call 24 seven and surrogate dad to some people in the youth group and all this stuff. And do you know what that guy also did? Got a paycheck. It's okay to get paid for giving value to someone. It's okay. The, the phrase money is the root of all evil. That's not the phrase. It's the love of money is the root of all evil. And when you look at language changes, I'm a language geek, by the way, when you look at language changes, it really means the worship of money. So when you put money above all else, that's when things start to break down for you. It's totally okay to want to make money. And you know, I'm not a mindset expert, but I am money motivated. I charge for my services and I do so very happily because I know that it's worth it. And so if you're sitting here wondering if it's worth charging $27 for a, a masterclass on making pizza, I'll tell you, my husband paid a lot more than that and it was not worth it, mm. but I was not upset. Okay. Basically they sent a box with ingredients and then they sent the recipe and like the whole time during the masterclass, God love this guy. He was so passionate, but he just pretty much spent like 20 minutes on the history of the tomato. <laughs> like, I'm just going to put that one out there. It was like an hour and a half into the class before we started making dough. <laughs> so if you can provide a value better than what I experienced that I, as a customer, am still not mad about because the pizza was delicious and now I have the recipe, you're fine. Just provide value and charge for it because ad, ad revenue is great. Affiliate revenue is awesome, right? I, in my business, I've got affiliate links and it's, it's piddly compared to what I know your people achieve, right? Because it's not the cornerstone of my business. It's just a nice little something to pay for this software that I use once a year, <laughs> right? So that's awesome, but it's okay to say, I have knowledge that's worth you paying for. My free stuff is awesome if you want to do it on your own, but now you're going to get my help one-on-one -on -one, or you're going to get XYZ benefit, or you're going to get something upgraded from what you can just get on my website. And, and saying, I'm going to charge you $27 for that is totally cool. I have actually written for food and nutrition coaches. Okay. So similar, but different. 
and they've sold recipe memberships. Recipes that people pay for monthly in the world of Pinterest. <laughs> Let's just say it, right? But the value isn't in the recipes, it's in the plan. It's in the, you know, the customization, the, the consultation, the XYZ that they've put on top of it. The recipes support it. So if you want to start a pizza lovers monthly, hey, I'm going to source the best ingredients. I'm going to tell you where to go. I'm going to get you the best deals because pizza flour apparently is very expensive, <laughs> <laughs> right? So I want to know how can I, how can I use my cheap AP flour? I just want to put that out there. But like, you're going to give me all this value that I can't get without doing all that legwork on Google by myself. I don't want to do that. And I'll get off my soapbox in a minute, but it also comes down to your market. If I can't put food on the table, then no, I'm not going to pay you. And so this is a luxury. So treat it as such. Okay. You're, you're working with people who have disposable income that especially in today's world is considered slightly affluent right we've got disposable income it's not all going to bills or debt or necessities so we are better than average and in that case now people are willing to trade their money for more time more fun more freedom the same people that hire a clean i mean i hire a cleaning person a cleaning crew to come through my house and clean it once a week I don't want to have to do it. It stresses me out and I suck at it. So I don't do it. Find the cleaning crew of your people. What don't they want to do? What, what would they rather have more time instead of doing? Do they not want to stress about Googling recipes all the time or coming up with a plan or learning how to do something through trial and error on their own? You're the shortcut. I like that. Sorry for that soapbox, no, but I'm passionate. <laughs> that's great. And I think it's such it's such a valuable thing that my audience needs to hear is that what they do, you might give away free content, but it is still valuable. And packaging it in a way that's going to make it even more convenient for people has a monetary value. Like a lot of my cookbooks have a lot of recipes that are also on my blog. No one complains because if they really wanted to do a Google search on my blog and go through and then assemble a PDF and print out every recipe on there to recreate the book, they could. They wanna spend the 30 hours of their life to do that, they can. Or they can give me 20 bucks and it'll show up printed and nicely bound in the mail two days later, thanks to Amazon. Well, and you know, let's just talk about that example for just a second. We have a ton of cookbooks, okay? So many that we had to actually put them on a different bookshelf. They're now spread all over the house because we had to find space. And my Pinterest, I have a board, it's called Cooking Up Trouble. <laughs> nice. And all my boards have silly names. So my Cooking Up Trouble board probably has 1500 pins on it. Okay, not to mention the PDFs that I've randomly stored on my computer. And when I was looking for a chocolate chip cookie recipe, the first thing I did was look through the cookbook because I have my little post-it note flags. I can write notes in the margin and it's organized. Whereas, you know, the internet is just this wild west of recipe and I don't know what's very good. This one I know was written by somebody I trust. 
I've used one of their recipes before successfully, right? So you've built, again, it goes back to that relationship piggy bank. You've built the trust. People who have used your stuff and they're coming back for more, they are ripe for sell. Hey, you've, you've visited a whole lot. You should, you should get everything all in one place. Plus some free, some new ones that I'll never post on the blog. Done. Sold. Sent. Please ship it to my house. Please, right now. I love that building up of trust and how valuable it is. It was made really apparent to me that with the International Sous Vide Association, we do a yearly conference and we were just starting the planning of it. We knew when we were going to do it. So we announced like, hey, this is a dates, you know, save the date. If you want to get the early bird tickets, you can. And we had like five or 10 sales out of the gate with like, literally that was the information. It is on August 6th. You've been to our previous ones, you know, it's going to be good. And we had people spending, you know, hundred to $200, not knowing who's going to be speaking, not knowing the subjects, not knowing anything about it, just because they trust us. And that's like you were saying earlier, if we have the fire festival and nothing happens and it's a disaster, people won't give us that trust ever again, probably. So maintaining that trust, but it's, once you develop that, it is your people have trust in you and to them, it's worth it that they know if I show them a sous vide recipe that they, my time and temperatures are accurate and my safety standards are accurate. Like it will turn out exactly like I say every time where, yeah, you can Google it and get the same info, but who knows? Like just cause they didn't get sick doesn't mean it's safe necessarily. The best chocolate chip cookies, by the way, we threw out half of them. They were too hard. <laughs> I'd never, I'd never had a recipe by that person before. And I won't again, because they're in, I followed their, I'm a very good recipe follower and I followed them to the letter. I may have skimped on like a tablespoon of flour because my five-year-old was helping me, but that's neither here nor there. But you know what I mean? Like they, they were rock hard. They tasted good, but they were not the best. Now, had it been from somebody that I already knew and I knew that their things were accurate and they were going to turn out the way they said they would, especially with differences in oven temperatures. And I don't care. I have an oven thermometer. It still doesn't help, right? Like it's all different. So especially like not just the trust, but the, the relationship, even though it f might feel one way, you don't know how your people are interacting with you when they aren't leaving a comment or replying to an email or liking something on social. You don't know if they're going and doing your stuff and loving it and just secretly coming back. So that, that is also adding to the relationship piggy bank. Every time they have a positive experience with you, they are much more likely to pay you. Makes sense. You keep providing value. They will be more happy to pay for value in the future as you keep doing that. Mm -hmm. We were talking a lot about newsletters earlier and one of the ways to get people a newsletter is to do like opt-ins or lead magnets. Do you have any tips for bloggers looking to use them more effectively on their own sites? I love content upgrades. So if you have, we're just going to go back to pizza. Now I really want yeah, pizza. I'm starving. <laughs> <laughs> if I find a recipe for the you know, best pizza dough, best New York style pizza dough on your website. Maybe a good content upgrade that I would opt in for, give you my email address would be 
a 15 minute video explaining the step, a video of you making the pizza dough because pictures are awesome. A video is better, especially when I'm trying to follow along. So instead of just posting that, gate it. It's called gated content where it's behind an opt-in. And there are some experts in my industry, in the marketing world, they create content upgrades for every single blog post they do. That's a whole lot of work. I don't <laughs> like that. Okay. So have a couple of different ones that you like to use that are kind of themed, right? So you've got your pizza one. Here's how to make your pizza dough. Then you have maybe a, a roasting vegetables one. I don't know. I'm just making, I'm really hungry now. <laughs> Right? So you've got these at different things that you tend to cover and then drop it in when it's appropriate. So for example, I'm just going to put this one out there. I have a lead magnet that is content starters and it's just topics. It's a generator. It's you plug in some information. It gives you um, content ideas. Well, if I'm ever talking about leveraging content, then I pitch that one. Then I have one that's about headlines. And if I'm ever talking about headlines, then I pitch that one. And if I have another, and I pitch that one. And so you can use the same strategy with your blog posts, really break it down into the kind of categories that you cover and just have a content upgrade embedded right in the page. Hey, did you love this? Interested in trying it out? Here's how to do it. Quick video below. Really great for complicated processes as well with the video. You can also do checklists, shopping checklist. I'm just trying to think is if you have a membership, offer a trial, get a week free. That's a, that's like the best lead magnet for memberships is to get X number of days free or get something for free. And then you can use that to build your list and leverage the traffic you're getting. I like that idea of categorizing your posts and saying, okay, I can do one that will meet these needs. You know, maybe it's making homemade sausage. And with the pizza recipe, you say a great side to this is, you know, my sausage. And then you have one that's talking about calzones. You're like, Hey, a great, you know, garnish for this is my sausage. And you can keep pointing to that same add on for different ones, but you're not just doing like, Oh, this is my pizza sausage. This is a calzone topping. This is a whatever you have to keep coming up with more and more every time you do it. Exactly. And then you can also look at, you can always look at your analytics, see which posts are performing the best consistently over time, right? Everybody's got those mainstay posts that they just keep going, create special content upgrades for those and really knit like really target in that traffic, but only do it for your best performing stuff. That makes sense. You can go to your top posts and kind of say, here's three or four ideas maybe for a lead magnet or an add on, which one of those would also apply to some other posts, but it's still maximizing the, the main one. And then you can work on that and it gets less value, but still value from all the other posts as well. Exactly. What are your thoughts on like pop-ups and like actually how, how do you promote those? Do you prefer to do inline text? Do you believe in pop-ups? What's kind of your thoughts along that murky topic? <laughs> All of the above. Yes. Do it inline text, either in the middle of the blog post where it's appropriate at the end where it's appropriate. If you have a sidebar, but always keep in mind that the majority of your traffic is going to be on mobile. 
so you want it to be legible on mobile and a lot of sidebars on sites and blogs aren't mobile friendly so just keep that in mind pop-ups a lot of, there's a lot of hate for pop-ups out there there's so much and I am NOT a pop-up hater okay if I land on your site and I am bombarded with 16 pop-ups I'm going to leave that's just how it is right the chat box and this thing and the allow notification I hate the allow notifications no I'm just not going to okay but that's just me <laughs> so don't hit me with 16 right when I land but I on my site I use a scroll based so once they've hit that halfway mark of the page and I write long pages and you know posts are pretty long too once they've hit that halfway mark I know they're probably interested in what I have to say right now and so that's when I hit the pop-up you can play with that a lot especially if you're using WordPress a lot of themes will allow you to adjust if they you know pop-up helpers will allow you to adjust that percentage so yes scroll based is good time based is okay right if they've spent longer than X amount of time but give it a minute <laughs> don't just say if they spent 10 seconds because nobody's consumed that much information in 10 seconds give the, really identify what a substantial amount of time you can look at your average page you know session duration maybe half or 60% then do the pop-up and something that I use a lot on desktop is really most effective is what's called exit intent so when the mouse scrolls up to the URL bar or down to the taskbar it says hey before you go and it's just an exit intent pop-up keep your pop-ups easy to close you don't want it to interfere with the functionality of the page if they're going to hit X they want to hit X don't stop them you're not gonna win favors let it don't let it interfere with the functionality but just hey did you want to go ahead and you know interested in this just offer it to them they have a really incredible rate of conversion when used properly and without all that 16 other pop-up competition I like that of using them smartly in a less obtrusive way and trying to show them at times that makes sense as opposed to like you go to a lot and like the pop-up pops up and I'm like I've never been to your site I haven't even started reading the article yet like why would I subscribe to your newsletter it's right yeah that that those drive me crazy and I'll get that one and then the notifications one and then the chat in the side and then a couple little like so-and-so just downloaded up at the bottom and it's like now you're taking up all my computer's energy <laughs> and all I wanted to do was see if I needed a tablespoon or a teaspoon <laughs> like, if you're sorry to make that grinding yeah. noise that it does and it's yeah <laughs> wanted my pizza sauce that's all I wanted <laughs> I just wanted to know how much to put in there that's all <laughs> one of the things you've mentioned a little bit and I know you're big on is using like exploring smaller offers to kind of build up your customer base and to scale your growth can you talk a little bit about that process so this has actually really become very popular lately but it's not a new concept and you might hear it called a bunch of different names like tripwire or a tiny offer or pocket product an associate of mine has actually trademarked the pocket product name which I think is pretty cool right but the idea is that it is a no-brainer offer 
based on the price of your core offer, which is the big thing, the main thing that you want to sell. So if you want to price your main thing, let's say at $47, a no-brainer offer would be in the $7 range. The whole idea of these is actually twofold. One, you are building a list, but the list you're building is inherently more valuable because it's a list of buyers. And the one person that is the most likely to buy from you is someone who has already bought from you. That's why if you go on a cruise, they're trying to get you to book that cruise while you're still on the cruise, right? That book that next cruise, they do. The whole time they're hitting you with next cruise offers. So they're the easiest person. So now you've created a brand new relationship with a brand new person who is now most likely to buy from you. So that's reason one, but two, it shifts the relationship. When I've spent money with you and I've done so in a way that makes me feel successful, I feel as if I've gotten value, but that money is a very low risk, $7, not that big a deal. Okay. Hence the no brainer idea. Once I've done that, I am much more likely to trust that your $47 program is also going to be of proportionate value. I got a lot of value from seven. I'm going to get even more from 47. And so I become an easier sell that way as, as well. The other thing that it will allow you to do, and this is if you work with paid traffic, it's called a self liquidating offer. And basically the whole point is to have these little offers, these small products, these no brainers, and to have them pay for themselves to pay for the ad spend. So if you spend $7 to get a new customer on Facebook ads and they pay you $7, you have now gotten what we love, which is a free lead. But that free lead is much more valuable than the free lead you might get off of a Pinterest search because that lead signed up for your newsletter. The one you paid for, they bought. And as we just talked about, a buyer is more valuable than a non-buyer. So that's kind of the, the psychology behind these small offers, these no-brainers. Creating them is also a lot of fun because you don't have as much pressure on you to go crazy. Mm -hmm. And if you're anything like me, you are like, I want to over deliver. And it goes back to that whole, I'm charging. So I have to give more, right? Oh, I'm going to charge him $20. I need to give him a 400 recipe book, yep. <laughs> right? Like, but if I'm only charging him seven bucks, like it can be a 20 recipe thing. It's okay. So you can go, you can have a lot of fun playing with different aspects of an offer. A really fun way to do this is look at the course that you want to make, the thing you want to do, the big thing, chunk a little piece of it off. This is also a way to test. Chunk a little piece of it off and say, this piece is $7. Hmm. And then the big thing is still 47, but this little piece, this little module, this little video, this little thing is seven bucks. Well, now 
not only are you building a list of buyers that pay for themselves, you're building a list of people who are very clearly interested in what your big thing might be. But if your little $7 one flops, then you, you re-engineer the big one as well. And your big one might have 10 of those little chunks in it. So now you can test 10 little different offers or 10 little different audiences and see which one works. And then ramp that up and spend more on that. <laughs> and I assume you can develop some of those smaller ones, like you won't get the most value out of them, but that you could develop them even before you have a bigger course that if you had five on different subjects, yeah. you could see which of these smaller offerings are being purchased. That's where I'm going to put 40 more videos together instead of doing that course yes. first and then hoping that's the one that's going to hit. Yes. And that's a really great strategy for lead magnets as well. If you don't even know where to start, and I said, look at what posts are doing the best, but now create some freebies around it. Which ones of those are doing the best? And then create your paid stuff. So you can always look at what is working successfully and figure out if it's worth going down that road. You may, you may think there's a huge market for New York style pizza making at home. And maybe, maybe Allison's the only one who wants to, <laughs> <laughs> right? So then it's time to go into homemade sausage, or maybe we go into this direction or we go into that direction. So there's a lot of different ways that you can use the data that you're gathering from everything you do. I like to, of, you know, lead magnets and the smaller offerings that it kind of gives you helps you establish what the actual intent of your readers are, right? Like some of your posts might have more traffic than another, but if the people are there for a very specific thing that they just want to get and get out, they might not care about your pizza class because they only want to know something about the tomato, you know, but if on another one, they're like, oh, well, I'm here because I want to learn about like how to actually make a pizza, then like they might purchase more, even though you have less traffic because they, their mindset is I'm trying to learn about something, not just get info and get out. Absolutely. Your data is never going to be one dimensional. You can always look at different pieces of it. You can always break it down, but there are things that you need to consider. And if I'm getting a hundred hits on this post, that does not mean that it's inherently a better post than the one that got 10. I need to look at what the next step was. And you're absolutely right. That's a really what are some good price points? You said like with 49, it might be $7. Do you have like saying seven, like I would always go to like nine is uh, is seven better inherently. Is there like the odd numbers slightly? Is it building up uh, curiosity with the, the person? I'm just curious. <laughs> the seven, nine, zero debate is raging in the marketing <laughs> community has been for years and will be for years to come. I had an associate that he preferred eight because it was round and felt, you know, I just, there are reasons for every price in the book, but I love seven. I've always used seven and a lot of people in the marketing space do use seven. It feels, it's kind of the the next level of the nine trick. And the nine trick is if something's priced at $1.99, it's really $2, but most people don't round up. 
they round down. Well, so many people picked up on the nine thing that now we moved it to the seventh thing. And so the seventh thing is the nine thing just with, you know, two bucks or two cents less. You can always price. And again, this is data that is not one dimensional. If you get four sales at $10 and three sales at $20, a higher price is better. But if you get 10 sales at $10 and three sales at $20, the lower price is better. So you have to look again at the different dimensions of your price. The higher your end price of your big thing, the higher your no brainer is going to be because the definition of no brainer changes with the spending power of your market. I'll give you an example. So my, my stuff is priced higher than $47. It's, you know, if I'm, if I'm giving, if I'm selling a course, it's in the hundreds of dollars. And so for a, a no brainer price for me would be that 47 or even 97, depending. So that's just, that's just my audience and my particular business. Yours may be very different. So I really want you to look at where you want to sell your main core offer and then go down. So if you say, I want to be at 67, maybe 17. If you want to be at 97, maybe 27 or 37, right? Like you don't want so big of a gap that it feels like just what? You don't want to go from 27 to 697. That's too far of a jump, too big, but 27 to 197, test it out. It's a little more palatable. 47 to 197, that feels okay. Because you're, you're essentially saying 50 to 150. Round it up in your head. <laughs> it makes sense if you're, you know, like you said, one is one reason to use it is to, you know, pay for itself that you're paying for leads, you know, paying for the leads that you're getting. But another one is to inform these are people that are going to purchase. And if you're a culinary institute and your goal is to sell a $5,000, like eight month cooking package, then someone spending $7 for their the pizza sauce recipe is going to be very little indication that they are willing to spend, you know, thousands of dollars. Exactly. Exactly. So it's, I, I really like the way you said it's to inform you that these are also potentially people that could buy. It's a qualification tool where you're, you're qualifying your potential purchasers, your potential buyers with your price. Well, I've had a great time talking to you and learning from your expertise. The thing that we didn't talk about, like we met on the System to Thrive podcast when I came on your podcast. Can you talk a little bit about your podcast? Because it's a great show. You and Jenny do an amazing job. I had so much fun on there. So talk a little bit about that and why my audience, you know, what they can get out of it as well. Sure. Well, so the System to Thrive, it was a, a Corona podcast, a COVID cast, if you will. It was born out of the pandemic when we really wanted to begin helping people continue to sell, but sell with authenticity and transparency. For a long time, I've seen the world moving this way that I call it digital Mayberry. We want to know the people that we do business with. We want to walk in the bank and have them know our name. Mm -hmm. And we want that same thing online. We want to, so I've been, I've been kind of seeing this for a while. I feel that COVID sped it up. And so this podcast really helps you be successful, make money, 
and still put good in the world, be authentic, build those relationships. And, you know, without selling your soul is kind of where we summed it up at the beginning of the episode. And so we do a bunch of episodes every week. (laughs) It's too much. Next season, we'll probably scale it back, but we bring on guest experts to fill in where we don't know. So we had you on to talk about actually leveraging a blog because that was something that we're not experts in. But then Jenny and I also deep dive into stuff that we do know really well, mainly copy, landing pages, list builds, things like that. And we're at systemtothrive.com. I think it's something that a lot of my audience could get a lot out of because just specifically food bloggers generally don't go into food blogging to be like, I'm going to become filthy rich and just take as much money. Like we're here because we like sharing recipes and bringing people together around the table and, you know, putting good out there and we still need to make a living. And so I think a lot of those things that you talk about are good ways to continue to do that, to put the good out there and still get paid for the value that you are providing your audience. Exactly. It's, it's what I got on my soapbox about earlier. It's okay to make money. <laughs> I think that's the perfect thing to leave with a podcast. It is okay to make money. For more on Allison, yes. you can head to facebook.com slash Copy, Instagram Clubhouse, or LinkedIn at Allison Lex, or check out her free gift, the 30-second headline generator. I'm going to have to check that out at allisonlex.com slash headlines. Allison, thank you so much for coming on and making bacon. I had a great time. I learned something every time I listened to you. Thank you so much for having me. This was a really great conversation and I hope I delivered some good value. You definitely did. I think my audience is coming away a lot smarter and hopefully they have a lot of good ideas for how they can start getting paid for their value. Uh, This has been Making Bacon. We're all about helping you serve your fans, grow your income, and get the most out of your blog. Until next time, I'm Jason Logston.